Good morning. Today's reading is taken from Nehemiah chapter 1, which can be found in the Church Bibles on page 484. That's Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you we have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather from them, sorry, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in, revive, in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Nice to see you. Let's pray that God would speak into our lives from this book. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the scriptures and we thank you for Nehemiah. And we pray, Lord, that as we journey through this book together in the coming weeks, you would be opening our hearts to you afresh and our eyes to you. I pray that you take what I've prepared and make it useful for the building of your kingdom. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we embark on a new sermon series going through the book of Nehemiah. And I don't know how familiar or otherwise you are with this book. A few weeks ago, I mentioned it in passing in a midweek meeting. And at the end of it, someone came to say, do you know, I don't think I know anything at all about the book of Nehemiah. And um, that's not altogether surprising. It's tucked away in the Old Testament. It's quite difficult to find. Um, some people's knowledge of Nehemiah, and I hope this isn't the only thing you'll remember about this sermon, but a good pub quiz question. Who is the shortest man in the Bible? And the answer is Nehemiah. We get, <laughs> I thought we'd get that out of the way, but I should be very sad if that's the only thing you remember. Uh, Nehemiah himself is not really very endearing. He, um, he has the most peculiar man management techniques. 
You read later in the book that he beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Um, you know, that gives you some idea of his management style. I wondered if he was the Alan Sugar of the Old Testament, and then I thought, if I say that, I could be sued for something or other. So I'm sure he isn't. But um, another reason this book sort of sits in the shadows is I don't think there are many memorable verses in this book. I could think off the top of my head of two, but I wondered how many you've got memorised. And then this book isn't quoted by anyone in the New Testament either. There's a shadowy link to a verse, obscure verse in John, but that's not short. And yet, for all those reasons for obscurity, and yet people are drawn time and again to this book for what it teaches us about leadership and for how remarkable it is that through the work and prayers and vision and inspiration of one man, the whole community of people who begin this book cast down, rather lifeless, listless and hopeless, become people confident that their God is living. And from being insipid, they become inspired and purposeful. And you have to ask yourself, how did that come about? And there's no question, one of the reasons it comes about is because of Nehemiah. And so it's not surprising this book in the Bible is plundered mostly for what it has to say about leadership. And the moment one says that, I imagine that some of us sit in the congregation and think, oh, well, I can switch off then. Because I'm not a leader. There's very little capacity in which I lead. And I would say, that's what you're thinking, you're wrong. And you're wrong because we're all leaders. And again, if I would change places with you and I heard someone say that, I'd, I'd be saying, well, of course you'd say that. But you really, really, we are all leaders because for sure there's one person in your life that looks to you for leadership, and it's you. We have to learn how to self-lead if we're going to be effective in any way at all. One of the things that we shouldn't do when we look at the book of Nehemiah is rush past chapter one. Most books on leadership about this book skip pretty much chapter one. But it has to tell us some truths about leadership that no secular book will dream of telling you. And what stands out for me as we begin looking at it is this. In God's economy, to become effective leaders, we first have to become effective followers. And that's not just to say when you're doing church work. Wherever you and I go as God's ambassadors, you carry with you God's imprimatur to shine as a light for him. And whatever that context is, if you're going to become an effective leader in the workplace, in your family, in your street, in your community, then you have, first of all, to become an effective and faithful follower. And if you fail in this department, it simply means that you and I will be leading people astray, and what's the point of that? And secondly, you see, just stand out from this first chapter, that what we are in private when no one's looking should align with what we are in public. And one of the things that attracts me to this book of Nehemiah and to the way it's written is Nehemiah actually lets you into his private life. For all those podcasts and books on 
leadership with snappy titles, you won't find many chapters where they actually let you see them as they are when no one's looking. Nehemiah does that. And there's a continuity. He's consistent 24-7 from what one can see. And it reminds me, and I can remind you, therefore, that arguably what we are before God and in front of God, alone with God, is much more significant than what we are on Twitter, Instagram, or in the pulpit, for that matter. And in this chapter, we get to see exactly what Nehemiah's like. Well, as we get underway and look at the very start of the book, I think it's worth noting that the whole book, the whole enterprise that we'll read about of rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem springs from a simple question that Nehemiah asks in the very second sentence of the book. He engages with what's going on in that far-off land of Jerusalem. It was mid-November, about 446 BC, when a group of travellers, led by a man called Hanani, visit the citadel in Susa, in Persia, where Nehemiah is living. And Nehemiah asks them a simple question, and it basically is, what's up? How's life back home? What's going on? And they say, well, it's really not going well at all. It's quite catastrophic. And they give him a very brief situation report. Verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burnt with fire. And when I heard this, said Nehemiah, I coughed and I thought, oh dear, not more problems on the international stage. I can't bear it. Thank goodness for a quiet life and the wonderful hanging gardens of Babylon round the corner and a wonderful well-stocked wine cellar. I think I'll just dive into it and get the king a specially good chateau nerf do something or other. Well, of course, that isn't what he said. But I bet he was tempted to. When you and I read in the newspapers of something else catastrophic going on somewhere, do we dive for cover? It's, it's much easier, isn't it, to be indifferent than to be involved. And yet, Neymar didn't walk away indifferent. Plenty of other people did. There must have been hundreds of people who walked around surveying the ruins day by day by day, who lived on top of the ruins in Jerusalem. But strangely, it, God raises up this man miles and miles away to really care and do something about it. This is how he reacts in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I wonder actually if it, it's something to do with the fact he is so far away from the situation that enables him not to become inured to it, not to become conditioned to just simply living with it. When he hears what the situation is, it strikes him as, this shouldn't be so. But it's so easy to live in a situation under your nose and just let it be so, isn't it? But he isn't, he's shocked. And he sits down, weeps, mourns and prays. And here's the second thing about leadership, not just you have to be a good follower, before you go public, go private. 
before you go public, go private. Now, this is so countercultural, is it not? In our, in our culture today, we're encouraged as almost a demand for an instant response to nearly everything. It's not called Instagram for nothing, is it? And if you, if you do what Nehemiah chose to do, if you sit down, weep, mourn, fast and pray, it sounds a bit like he's signed up for procrastinatogram. But there's something much deeper going on than that. Evidently, as we'll see when we just look into the prayer a little bit more, evidently this isn't the first time he's prayed. Prayer is at the nerve center of his life. All those miles away from his spiritual home, Jerusalem, all those miles away from his fellow Jews, he's been fostering, nurturing, and developing a sacred, secret, private space of conversation with the Lord, which begs a question. Is that what you do? Is that what I do? And if you are, well done. And if you're not, it can be done. And when it comes to prayer, there are two essential things to have in mind. Number one, Jesus teaches never give up. Never give up. Keep praying. He tells the disciples a parable. Specifically, he says, so that they should always pray and not lose heart. So try again. And number two is, I would wager a considerable sum, if I had a considerable sum, that every single one of us, if we are brutally honest, we've had to start again from time to time. We've, it's a familiar experience of turning over a new leaf because we know that our prayer life goes in chapters and sometimes we're doing well and sometimes we're struggling and sometimes we've almost lost the thread. Well, get back on the track is what Nehemiah is shouting at us from chapter one because if there's one takeaway from the insight into his private life, it has to be that he is a person of prayer, which is all the more impressive because he has a very busy job. The last sentence of the chapter tells us that. He was the wine waiter to the king. And that's not just a kind of occasional flunky that performs at mealtimes only. It means he was a top civil servant. And I don't know if it gets harder or easier, but the busier you become and the more prominent and the more competent you become in your sphere of influence, I think it, it is tempting to let prayer go because time pressure has probably gone up on you and you carry more in your diary just by virtue of your seniority or influence and because your competence does get you so far in life. But do a Nehemiah, he began every day, it seems, talking to the living God. And were he not to have done, were he just fully engaged in his work, I don't think he would have responded at all to this news. I think his heart would have become hard. I think he would have become distant from God and his hope would have been down in the dumps like everyone else. But it wasn't like that for him because prayer had become tattooed into his life like a tattoo. It was part of what he was. It was ingrained. When I look back, I can see periods of my life. I can see my early days of following Christ. I came from a non-Christian family. And I was just remembering that um, I, a friend of, my, of mine's father was, uh, made himself accessible to encourage me in my Christian life. And from time to time, I would write to him 
because those were the days before emails and texts and those sort of things. And I would write to him and I would generally, looking back, I think I would catalogue the biggest problems in my life and say, help. And he was far too gracious and kind to say, Rupert, would you mind writing to me occasionally when you haven't got a problem? But he would write back and he used this very quaint phrase once. He said, Rupert, thank you for your letter. I've spread out your letter before the Lord. And I thought, what is he talking about? About the only thing I spread is butter. And I realised later on that in the scriptures that, that he's actually quoting from Isaiah. And what my friend Jeff had as part of his lifestyle was to bring everything that was going on into the Lord's presence. And so it was as, as natural as breathing for him to write to me, Rupert, thank you for writing to me. I've, I've talked to God about it on your behalf. And, and is, is that part of your way of life and mine? It, I want to encourage it to be. But there's nothing too small or too big to talk to God about in prayer. And someone said, if it's not worth praying about, it's certainly not worth worrying about. Prayer, prayer is the lifeblood, the breath of this book. And we can't just rely on everyone else to do our praying for us. I, I remember hearing from uh, somebody a story that took place in Melbourne, Australia, where a bishop took a taxi and this, this bishop was dressed with his dog collar on and his purple shirt. And as he got out of the taxi, the taxi man shouted out the window, say one for me, gov. And uh, quick as a flash, the bishop shouted back, say one yourself. And, and that's true, we, we can't just delegate this area of prayer. We should be encouraged to move into God's presence ourselves. So, I, I've just been pointing out that it was part of Nehemiah's life and he prayed because he was committed to praying. It wasn't that he just had spare time and nothing else to do. Let's look a little bit at the, at the content of this prayer. And as we do, we discover that Nehemiah's prayer is shaped by his convictions about God. And so are yours, and so are mine. If you could eavesdrop my prayers and I could eavesdrop your prayers over a period, we would discover quite quickly the kind of God that we believe in. And he's convinced that the Lord God he worships is almighty. You can see that in verse 5. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, you know, once you know, once you really know and believe in your heart that God is almighty, your prayer life is going to take off. There's a children's song that I've heard sing. I don't know if we sing it here. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing that he cannot do. Yeah, anyone know that one? Yeah, <laughs> well, some of you don't, but the words are good. My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing that he cannot do. And sometimes when you get to the end of that chorus, some churches add, through you which is a shocker. But there is nothing that he cannot do. And you find that in scriptures. Jeremiah says that, nothing is impossible with God. Luke says that, nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe that? And how do you come to believe that? Well, you come to believe that through the scriptures, through seeing what God can do. And evidently, Nehemiah had seen in the scriptures what God could do because he recites it in his prayer. He, more than once, he quotes from the book of Exodus, and I'm sure he's got in his mind some of those plagues that happened, which if you'd been around at the time would have absolutely blown your mind, whether it's rivers of blood or frogs or locusts or gnats or darkness or boils or the Passover itself. 
Do you know what God can do? There's nothing that our God cannot do. We usually end the service with the blessing. And you might have switched off by that point, but it always moves me when we say, may the blessing of God Almighty, God who is almighty, we don't say, may the blessing of God who's hard pushed to do anything. We say, may the blessing of God Almighty rest upon you. And I love it when I meet people who are genuinely filled with that kind of trust that there's nothing that God cannot do. And when Nehemiah thinks of the rubble in Jerusalem and the disgrace that the people are in, he's saying to himself, there's nothing my God cannot do. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination for us to stop and think and think, well, what's the condition of this country? What's the condition of London? What's the condition of worshippers in the church? Does it look as if there's nothing that God cannot do? It, it looks to me like there's not much going on. That relative to the amount of people who are not worshipping God this morning, to the numbers who are, God's hardly got a thumbprint on the map. But there's no reason why that shouldn't change, is there? Many years ago, in the mid-1980s, I remember hearing a man called David Watson speak from that pulpit, actually, night after night for over a month. And David ran a church in York. And the first church that he ran in York was called St. Cuthbert's. It was a tiny little church. And um, on, he tells in his autobiography, on the second day of running this church, a group from the Church Redundancy Commission, which is not the most optimistic of outlooks when you named the Church Redundancy Commission, came round to inspect the church. And um, he writes in his autobiography, called You Are My God, I gave the chairman what probably seemed like a typical pious remark from a young clergyman. I said, if anyone comes to this church and preaches the simple gospel of Christ, believes in the power of prayer and trusts in the Holy Spirit, this building will be full in no time. Then he says, sadly, the chairman told me they'd be returning in a year to close me down. But that's not how the story actually maps out. Because there's nothing our God cannot do. Where does that kind of faith come from? How do you build it up? Well, as I say, our prayers, our hopes, are shaped by our knowledge of God through Scripture. Now, basically, there's a choice you have to make. Are you going to believe the world or are you going to believe the word? And where are you going to invest your hope? And for those who invest their hope in the word, then you can see promise after promise after promise that God will be faithful and hear your prayer. Nehemiah prays this twice in this prayer. I wonder if you picked it up. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying. Now, on one level, what he's saying is this. For goodness sake, God, take your blinkers off and take your fingers out of your ears. But I think there's something else going on. I think he's remembering that in Exodus chapter 6, we read, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their oppression. I'm aware of their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them. And I think his prayer is deliberately echoing that progression that God repeats time and again, and principally in Jesus Christ. I have seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their crying out. I'm concerned for their suffering, and I have come down. And if Nehemiah could pray like that, 
So much more can we pray like that. Lord, be concerned when you see what's going on amongst your people. And he says in verse 17, pay attention, Lord. Basically, I'm confessing our sins and we need your help. And what he's doing is claiming the promises of God. In in one respect, when we pray like this, it's an arm wrestle with God. I'm not sure that bargaining with God is something that we can do too often, but you can hold him to his promises. When he's on record as saying, I will do this, God will do that. He is true to his word. So what promises do you claim? What promises do I claim? What promises should we claim as a church of St. Michael's? Well, I think um, I often claim the promise when Jesus says, I will build my church. Well, I look around, I say, well, how about it? Your church needs building. Where's, come on, build your church. Or what about this? That God is only as far away as a prayer, one prayer. When Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Why don't we claim that and say, Lord, you need to bring people here who need to invite you into their lives and you need to do it. Last, two weeks ago, our first evening service at Mike's at Six, one person gave their life to Christ. Well, that's a start. But Jesus says he came to seek and save the lost. So we should be saying to him, well, come on then, seek and save the lost. We'll bring the lost in and we need you to make yourself known to them. Or Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Well, do you know people who are walking in darkness? I do. If you don't, just go and stand pretty much on the corner of any street in London. You'll see plenty of people who look as if they're not enjoying life much and life is darkness. And start praying, Lord, please, please, please open their eyes. Stir up their hearts. Bring change, bring your kingdom. He not only claims the promises of the Bible, but notice this, the honour of God's name really matters to Nehemiah. Really matters. Yes, he cares about the broken down walls, but it's what the broken down walls say about the living God that really concerns him. And it's a disgrace that it's bringing to God's name that provokes him in prayer. And he describes himself as someone that reveres God's name. Do you? And I'm sure you do. And so what kind of a message does it give out? We may not have broken down walls, but the general messaging that people have about the place that God could have in their lives or the place that the church has in their lives is so low. I heard one vicar of London being interviewed not so long ago, and it was put to him, you've talked about your sadness at seeing historic churches turned into carpet warehouses and posh pubs to which the vicar replied, exactly. And then he went on to say, one of our archdeacons has said that an empty church is like the empty palace of a long-forgotten king, and people walk past and say the king is dead. That's just not right, is it? That just is not right. If that doesn't motivate us to pray and to say, come on, God, you've got to show for the honour of your name. The honour of God's name really mattered. Think about 
the world of education, say, or the world of finance, or the law, or government, or the world of teaching, or the health service, or family life, or international relations. And you look into all these worlds and just say, how much honor is given to God's name right now in these worlds? Not a lot. It should bother us. It should provoke us to prayer. And we approach God's throne with confidence, saying, come on, Lord, come on, we want to see the honour of your name restored. And two final observations as I come towards close. We learn from chapter one in this prayer. The first one is this. Right at the beginning of this book, Nehemiah surrenders his human rights. Did you notice that? He keeps saying to God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear your servant or your slave. When Paul writes, many of his letters begin like that. Paul, a slave, a slave to God. Basically, we're signing off our prayers. Your slave is talking to you. This building work begins in the basement. Your slave is talking to you. I often think at the end of this service, we'll say a prayer. You've said it so many times in your life. But have you ever pinched yourself and thought, do I mean it? Wow, that's heavy duty. We, we shall say, Lord, we offer you ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a living sacrifice. That's slavery, isn't it? That's, that's the condition of following Christ. And then when we pray like that and mean it, God says, great, we're ready to begin. And then this, the very final thing is this. Wonderfully inspiringly, Nehemiah reminds us that one life makes a difference. And, and I would say it's one of those things that I've come to see over, over 40 years of church leadership. It doesn't matter how small your congregation might be or how large your congregation might be. A single life that is fully devoted to Christ, without reservation, will open swathes of ministry and kingdom building. So if there's anyone sitting here and thinking, oh, my life couldn't make a difference, of course Nehemiah's did, we know that from history, but my life, you know, counted out, it's not going to make a difference, you're wrong. All that has to happen is you just have to surrender your life, ask God to guide you by his Holy Spirit, and make it a habit of yours to always say, yes, Lord, and God will open the door of his kingdom in all sorts of ways. Later in this book, our eyes will be focused on completely different things, and we will marvel as we see so many hundreds of people working together, as we see that the walls go from rubble to knee height and head height, as we see the people of God recommitting themselves to God with a vengeance. But we should remember that the foundational moment when the rebuilding of these walls was set in stone can be traced back to a prayer in Persia. The cupbearer to the king, but principally servant to the king of kings. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this book of Nehemiah and for bringing us face to face with him today. And we like to remember, Lord, that you're the God for whom all things are possible. It's not difficult for us to see that your name is 
more often dragged through the mud than lifted up. But we're glad to see in this book that you can change all of that. And we'd like to say to you again, we want to be changed so that our lives become more effective in being witnesses to you. And so that this church, again, can help restore the honour due to your name. And we pray for our prayer life. Lord, we pray that whether it's strong today or weak today, whether we've embraced you in prayer today or not yet spoken to you, we pray that you'd help us start again and start afresh and stir up our knowledge of you that we could pray with confidence that you, the God of all power, can do mighty things. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.